Steve Marks is on this episode of the Chillinois Podcast. We'll be talking about his job at the OLCC, how the legalization of cannabis in Oregon compares to the legalization of cannabis in Illinois, and more. We release new episodes of the Chillinois Podcast every Sunday on Patreon. For just $3 a month, you can support our show and get early access to new episodes of the Chillinois Podcast. Go to chillinois.net slash Patreon. Steve, thank you so much for sitting down with me today on the Chillinois Podcast. I've been so excited to talk to you. Now, for folks that don't know you, can you go ahead and introduce yourself to my audience? So I'm Steve Marks, Executive Director of the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission, uh, formerly known as the Liquor Control Commission. We replaced control with cannabis, so we're still OLCC, so we had a lot of efficiency in moving to this new name. Yeah, and I got to ask, you know, whenever you meet people at like cocktail parties or whatever, just hypothetically, when you tell them that you work with cannabis, are they like, ooh, <laughs> perk their ears? They are like, ooh. Uh, it's interesting. It's such an exciting space. People want to know about what's going on. And, uh, you know, it's been very uh, uh, interesting ride to watch the rise of cannabis move up here in Oregon and then obviously across the country. Absolutely. And, you know, in the spirit of that, I want to learn a little bit about the the rollout of cannabis in Oregon. And I felt like maybe you might be a good person to uh, speak with uh, about this topic. Um, we're ve- very well. We are very well aware here at Chillinois on how the the legalization rollout went. And uh, I'm just we're always interested to hear uh, how other markets found their shape, if that makes sense. And so um before we get to that, though, I, I would like to ask you how you found yourself in this position, because I feel like that would be an interesting story. Um, There's a little bit of interesting story to it. So I came into government as an intern in my master's program and to the um, Senate president's office. And that just happened that the senator that I attached to for an internship became the Senate president. His name was John Kitzhaber. He had a long ride as Senate president of the Oregon legislature, eight years. He was out two years. We ran him for governor. He was governor for eight years. I stayed with him on that. I was his senior policy advisor. And then for the last year and a half uh, was his chief of staff. Um, that was an exciting time there. That was uh, both uh, 9-11 through that big budget shortfall, we had the worst fire season in Oregon's history. So uh, it wasn't particularly a fun ride. It was 2002, it was very raucous in Oregon. Um, went out and did private sector stuff. Uh, did some policy work with public safety, interoperable communications, sustainable food practices with food processor. Worked on behalf of economic development for Port here in Oregon, Port of Coos Bay. And a few other things. And then my governor was out for eight years and came back in. First elect, governor elected to a third term. So I closed my doors and rolled that up, worked on his campaign and came back in with him and uh, got here because there was a Republican um, that we had worked with in the legislature who was on the Liquor Control Commission. And they had had a hard time replacing a director. It was under some fire and they couldn't get anyone and I was helping them search. And ultimately he was just a member and he said, he was with the head, the governor had to appoint a chair and he says, well, if he appoints me, Steve, can I float your name and me not believing you would ever be chair? I said, oh sure, Rob, you can float my name. Uh, that's how I ended up here. It was happenstance, but you know, because you work with good people over time, had the opportunity to do it and, uh, and got into the challenge, anticipating, or I was just liquor then, that cannabis may come to the to the OLCC. So uh, that's the the long sorted story of getting from here to there. Awesome, that's super cool to to hear uh, your trajectory. And so it sounds like uh, you you assumed the position and the li- I might butcher the name here, but the Liquor Control Commission. Um, and then you you had some inkling maybe that policy was going to change with cannabis. Was that at the time when like 
correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Oregon passed cannabis legalization via voter initiative. Is that correct? I'll measure 91, 2014 election. Gotcha. 2014, you said? Yeah. Gotcha. Wow. That's, that's crazy to think about. That's almost 10 years, uh, pretty soon yeah. here. Yeah. That's I've good. been agency since 2013. So actually I'm on my ninth year, uh, October 26th will be nine years. Yeah. And were was Oregon the third state to go adult use? Well, Sorry I, if- it's third or fourth. Alaska also came in in the same election. Mm. We got to licensing before they did. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now tell, tell us about, uh, tell us about the rollout. And if you can tell that's a loaded question. Um, I, I read headlines that Oregon had quote too much weed. And so I wanted to talk about the rollout and, and maybe how we got to that, that point. Cause frankly, that's a problem I wish we had in Illinois. <laughs> well, we'd love to like have a contract with Illinois. Um, You know, so Oregon was a much different state than just about anywhere in the nation, especially at that time. California is very similar to us, I think, in terms of sort of the cannabis history and at least parts of California. But, you know, we didn't bring up an industry. Our idea was to convert the people who are growing weed illegally and shipping out and bringing them into a system. So we had a much, much different job than the rest of the nation. Um, and, uh, we, uh, approach that with, uh, open arms and brace, uh, qualifications were low to get into the barriers to entry were very low. You know, you can get a full on outdoor license for us, which is just under an acre or just about an acre, uh, for 5,000 bucks, you know, uh, look around the country and see who else says that. Um, because of the system, we took in and embraced so many people. We brought them in, you know, uh, the legislature had already disqualified marijuana crimes, right? So those weren't a bear. So in some ways we were in front of the curve, right? Very much so. And to, to, I believe we're still in front of the curve with the diversity of operators we got in because we are the wild west. We are the capitalistic model, we didn't have caps or controls uh, or the same kinds of controls that a lot of states in the East Coast are doing. But even my neighbor, Washington, the note, uh, to the north, you know, came in with caps by communities and a population limit on how they were doing it out. Consequently, Oregon's got, you know, more retail outlets than Starbucks and McDonald's combined. Uh, we have home delivery. You are never uh, far away from uh, receiving a product here, um, which w- was a goal to make our system accessible. Um, the rollout was uh, tumultuous. The first thing we did was, you know, really beg for more time because, you know, you got to do licensing. Uh, the measure went into effect, I think, if I'm remembering correctly really went into effect June, July of uh, 15, um, at which point we were supposed to be all ready to rock and roll and implement the system. Uh, We actually got to licensing and got a system up and started and issued our first licenses in January of 16. Um, Well, we we received our applications in January of 16 and Sometime, you know, three, four months later, we issued our first licenses uh, in Oregon. Um, we also when we opened up. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> we, we have a uh, pe- people on the Chillinois podcast are used to uh, dogs uh, coming in every, every once in a while. It sounds like your dog has thoughts on this topic. Yeah. Um, so yeah. sorry. Uh, um you were talking about uh, licensing and how it was open and um, you starting in 2016. Sorry, I'm just trying to jog your memory. Yeah. Nope. I, I know where I was at. Um, right, right as soon as we opened up licensing, we got letters from the legislature, leadership uh, committees that were involved with looking at this and work with this. They actually formed a joint marijuana policy committee between the house and the Senate. So we had one place to work 
And they wanted to open up the residency requirements so you could have out-of-state investors. So we got some in under the initial set of rules we had, but we modified the rules. So we stopped sort of proceeding with that track and we modified our rules so then we could take out-of-state investors. Complicated step for us to roll out. Uh, probably an important step when you look at what states are now facing other states, some that have been um, insular in that with the Commerce Clause, and, and you're starting to see those issues pop up and the way state systems have protected their own bu bubble, and necessarily, right? This was a time of the coal memorandum, you know, my compatriot, Rick Garza, who manages the Washington uh, Liquor and Cannabis <laughs> Commission, you know, they were the first ones in. They didn't even have the coal memo. Neither did Colorado. You know, that coal memo roll out. We knew what it was. And we had seen their early experience with, you know, some of the copycat packaging and labeling issues they were having, the dosage issues. So we were able to uh, use that to our advantage coming into the system. Um, but, you know, that gets us to, you know, how we rolled out because the license application, the legislature in Oregon did an interesting thing because we had a longstanding, highly uh, subscribed to medical program, you know, 60,000. I'll have my numbers will be wrong here, but just to give your audience some relative idea, like maybe about 60,000. Uh, patients, um, I can't remember how many growers, but you know the growers were determined by patient cards. Um, so there, but we had quite large medical grows across Oregon based on those patient guard, cards, and people uh, subscribed to that system. They had dispensaries with outlets for the medical cardholders. Well, the legislature um, that second session shifted the way the taxes were to be levied under ballot measure 91 from a production tax to a retail excise tax, sales tax. Uh, big change, really beneficial, I think, to come, the coming up of our, our system. But they did an early start. So they allowed these dispensaries to sell medical product recreationally. Well, that became a deterrent to people who had excitement about coming into the new recreational system because they could make money on that side of the coin. Um, so I got some growers in in that first year and then the growers were there growing and we had no labs, no lab licensees and we had no retail. So we didn't have a supply chain that flew, you know, would come through to the consumer. So by the fall of that first year, I was begging someone, anyone, to make the investment become a retail licensee, get in. You know, the people who had created this ballot measure, the leaders, the forefathers of cannabis legalization in Oregon needed to step up and someone needed to create that, that chain to the consumer. Got that. Begged in labs that had to make a very big investment to change and come in and you know, meet pesticide requirements that we put in place. So just getting that supply chain leaked out that first season was an enormous, enormous and instructive challenge uh, uh, for us to do. But we, we succeeded just barely, just barely for the croptober, we call it out here in Oregon, outdoor harvest season. You know, we went from about, uh, I can't remember what the first year, if it was a million pounds of wet weight, harvested marijuana from just outdoor. There's other constant indoor marijuana growth. To, you know, last season, it was 5 million wet weight pounds. So, you know, that translates into a lot of dry product or a lot of oil. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the main differences I've heard so far with Oregon legalization and, and Illinois cannabis legalization is that First of all, we did it via the the state legislature. We we yes. actually, as a state, don't allow ballot initiatives, in my opinion, unfortunately. But putting my opinion aside, um, so the so we did it really quickly, and we did it via the state legislature. 
And what we were able to do is turn around in a matter of months and open for adult use sales. It sounds like Oregon wasn't able to do that. So there's there's a few differences off the bat. But back to, you know, one of the main things that we dove into this conversation with uh, the number or the idea of kind of a more open market approach. And I just want to get down to uh, brass tacks and ask you this question, um, you know, from your perspective and from the other perspectives you've heard, what is the problem or problems with having too much weed in your state? A lot of people don't think that's a problem at all. <laughs> but for a regulator, someone who wants to keep, you know, under our current strictures, right, and especially back in coal memorandum days, you know, you had to keep the product in the state. You didn't want it getting diverted out of the legal enterprises uh, in a diversion in out-of-state commerce. There's no difference between that and right what we've had for Oregon's infamous and famous for you know decades of growing great uh, marijuana, the Emerald Triangle, primarily on our southern Oregon border uh, with California. Um, so you know it. It becomes a problem because people are looking for markets. Now, it wasn't as much of a problem as you might think because there was so much at the time capital involved in wanting to be in this space and come forward. So people were more like making investments in the IT company. You know, you keep pouring the money in, right? It's part of getting it grown and you're holding it and you're wasting out costs, but you're becoming... You're trying to get yourself to the place in the market where you do take off and go. We had a lot of that capital there that could hold product in the system. Now, we didn't have as good a controls right at seeing what was maybe diverted or our speculative or our data-driven point on how much early on was being diverted out. Um, but today with our controls, you know, it's probably changed to we have some, there's one study that shows that about at 11%. I went doubt that it's a little higher than that. I'd like to have it at 10% uh, for our system. But the problem is keeping it inside your borders. And, you know, Oregon is one of these states that would love to supply the rest of the nation. Our industry came here uh, with the thought that, you know, this is going to be an export state like we've traditionally been in the illegal market. Um, you know, that we'll have to see what happens with federalization. That's certainly in Oregon's interest. It's um, maybe to the detriment of some of the markets that have developed within states if that, you know, uh, import export is allowed in that way. Um, but Oregon certainly has an economic stake in being able to export product because we can produce so much so readily and have developed a system that, um, provided a lot of opportunity to licensees to get in. You know, we're at about, you know, we're slightly over 2,800 licensees. We're not a boutique licensing state. Um, there was a lot of opportunity for, um, uh, with little bears, right? We've got a pretty diverse makeup in this little state's uh, licensing network, which I'm really proud of. Uh, can't prove but it always a, uh, uh, frustrates me when you see the maps and they say, oh, Oregon doesn't have any diversity licensing. No, but we've got a heck of a lot of minority businesses inside our system, um, a lot, <laughs> maybe, you know, more than, uh, well, I don't have the rest of the state stats, so I'll stop there, but, but I do believe we have a lot. We have not done a disparity study, but I believe, you know, Oregon doesn't have a great deal of diversity, and I think we're um, overweight or, or have a good record in that way to have a lot of diverse women and minority owned enterprises actually up, actually able to operate, not under any legal lawsuits and creating uh, businesses here in Oregon. We need to do more and we are, we're thinking we're, we're working on how to do that and keep that moving forward with some uh, program that we got in place to facilitate that. But, you know, we, that's what we brought. We brought opportunity. I remember um, doing an interview with um, sort of that on the edge news outlet national and they, uh, I'm forgetting a mark, uh, but the point was they asked me a question like, 
how do you, how do you feel about this wide open capitalistic system you got? Cause there was visions in the legislature of a more insular. Uh, yeah, I've actually got that clip pulled up. Uh, yeah. Um, we, we can play it now for our audience. Um, uh, it was vice that you were thinking of. Vice, Yes. Vice. <laughs> you, you might win this one. All right. It sounds like a lot. <laughs> Do you look back at it and think maybe we should have put some caps on production or on the licenses? You know, my job's not to second guess that I'm just the administrator, but if you're asking me, uh, I, I don't think so. Everyone just wanted to be the first in, to have their stake in it, and they were willing to take the risk to be a part of that market. So I don't think that's necessarily bad. And in a control market, they'd be left out. They'd never get that chance. And that, that's so perfect. I want to show one more clip really quick to it just uh, kind of highlight your point there. Um, and this is a short clip, and then we'll get right back to the conversation. This is from a regulator, a former, former regulator in Illinois, uh, that kind of describes the opposite of what you just described. 4,518 applications for what was originally going to be 75 licenses. 99% of people weren't going to get them. Right. So just to recap that 4,500 uh, applications for what was supposed to be 75 licenses, they knew 95% of people weren't going to get them. And so I wanted to kind of take it back to something you just said, Divest, uh, diversion is definitely, I think, a concern that regulators share, and it's a concern with open markets. But one of the concerns, and you you kind of uh, illustrated it, I believe, in that clip, but you also said it at the beginning of your answer. I think the 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 number one opposition to an open market doesn't necessarily come from the consumer; it comes from the operator that's trying to hit their marks. There's definitely some of that in the control operations, right? And those that's definitely, and especially, you know, and if I was there and I had to compete and get into a system of limited entry like that, and I was embedded in it, I'd want to protect that and keep that. Um, so, you know, it's different systems. And I still, you know, when I did that interview, I was like, we had gone from this idea that we were going to, come out of medical like Colorado. Some people were advocating that that would help our legacy operators move on. Our legislature went beyond the more controlled role forward. And I think it paid dividends for us. It gave people opportunity and that's what they wanted, you know? Uh, I, unfortunately, you know, the price to pay in that market was a lot of people lost their licenses. They couldn't meet our requirements. You know, there was just people who, should have never been, you know, in the business and sought a license that, you know, couldn't thrive, failed on all aspects. And, you know, uh, we took their licenses when they did that. Right. Yeah. Um, and to your, to your point out of that clip, they knew the risk and they were willing to participate in that. And maybe yeah. some of them, maybe some of them weren't fully aware of the risk, but if you're looking at it, you know, I yeah. mean, you should, you should, if everybody's going to get a license and the license only costs $5,000, I mean, that's way different here than Illinois. Yeah. I mean, first yeah. of all, we have caps. At this point, you couldn't pay for a license if you wanted to, unless you bought it from a current license holder. That's the only yeah. option you have. Yeah. So. No, and, and so, you know, I think it's very out. Of what I like. And that was a moment for me to defend the way we went about it, right? To think about that, that was the first time I got confronted on that where I had to say which was better you know for being a, a regulator I would have been much happier with the smaller controlled system but uh, for the economics for what it provided to the industry and for what I really believe the industry needs to thrive survive and innovate um, I think the open market uh, proved its metal we've got a lot of sophisticated operators here now you know uh, the enforcement system over those years from those early ones that really drummed out those folks that were not in it for necessarily compliance and to serve the state and to do that. And we've got a pretty compliant legal industry, really displaced, right? With widespread access, we displaced illegal markets. No one was even doing the home grow of four plant. I don't know anyone in Oregon that you know, when that came into place, everyone was like, I'm going to grow my four plants legally. 
Well, now it's like tomatoes at the store. I mean, you can call up and have it delivered to your home. No one's doing that. Um, our usage, you know, has gone up, but the percent of population using can't, hasn't jumped dramatically. You know, we didn't change the underlying composition of the citizenry of Oregon, right? And it didn't really cause that many problems. Our biggest problems have been, you know, not having federal legalization, not, and there's two, you know, it's not even having a, a framework for commerce, not just legalization possession. Cause to me, um, we still are fighting or a lot of the advocacy is about legalization. We're so past that barrier. States are already there. They're moving forward. We really don't have the rules of commercialization nationally or that we, we have to apply to, which, you know, puts me to, you know, my national focus is really on that side. Uh, because as a regulator with my licensing structure embedded or what you have in Illinois, it's, it's, it's like, how are we going to relate to a federal government that legalizes, well, states have legalized marijuana, but how do you commercialize it, do trade, move products? Um, you know, and I think there are some that would like to have constant barriers to that from where they're at and the way the state has developed. Um, and then, you know, that does present problems, I think, with the Commerce Clause. So, you know, as Congress, as we as a nation look at solving that, right, it, it could have an answer that uh, could have, you know, could be we create these insulary markets. It's not like alcohol because you have the 21st Amendment that gives states constitutional amendment that gives states greater control inside their states. Um, but I think both equal protection and the Commerce Clause are going to drive us to more open markets. Not only that, the, you know, interest of the traded companies. No one wants to recreate a product from state to state to state. They want to manufacture it in one place, get the quality controls in place, and take that finished product and bring it to the presented to the state. You know, it should mean all the state's qualifications. We've got to harmonize those some, right? And we probably need the federal, a federal system of governments to help us. That's where we need the help. Um, yeah. I'm glad you use tomatoes as an example, because it's an example I use uh, all the time. And in fact, uh, when I spoke to the Illinois, the the manager for the division of cannabis at the Illinois Department of Agriculture, I showed him this quote from Ed Rosenthal, and I'll read it for our listeners, uh, for folks that aren't watching. More tomatoes in, are grown in America by home gardeners than are produced commercially. Yet there is a commercial market for tomatoes and tomato products of all types, canned, vine ripened, organic, sauces, soups, ketchup, etc. At the same time, small scale specialty cultivators do well selling their products at farmers markets and home gardeners with extra tomatoes share their bounty with their neighbors as gifts and trade or through informal sales. Cannabis could be handled in the same way. Commercial growers can thrive side by side with home and specialty cannabis cultivators. I truly believe that. And I don't mean to get too lost in that. I brought up that quote. And one of the things he said to your point of commerce was that in states like Oregon, in states like Michigan, when they have a glut, normally what you would do is export it to another state offset, you know, kind of balance things out. But like you say, um, you know, we're not able to do that yet because of the the federal guidance we're operating under kind of in spirit. Now, it used to be the Cole memo. Shout out to me. I'm just joking. I didn't write it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I met Mr. Cole. He was quite an individual. I expected to see, you know, this government lawyer type. He came in, he had gravitas. I think he knew exactly what he was doing when he wrote the memo about giving states the ability to innovate underneath that framework. You know, because I think we all thought of coal as repressing the development. And uh, I got to say, uh, I was really super impressed on what he produced at a time when the Department of Justice was not very open to these kind of ideas. Um, he deserves a hell of a lot more credit for what he did with his framework to develop legalization of drugs. And he wasn't, you know, pro-drug. He understood the illegal markets and the trafficking and the criminality and the money laundering 
aspect of it and saw this as a better uh, format and that states would, would get it right eventually, given the opportunity. They would balance out those decisions and the framework was there. Uh, uh, just, you know, uh, you got to, uh, I didn't think of him initially this way, <laughs> um, but for me, uh, he really is the father of national legalization. That memorandum was a framework. It was posed under a control, but it allowed development. It was an amazing, a really amazing piece of work. Yeah, it's something that's cool to look back on. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it it sounds like, again, a diversion is a concern, but it really sounds like, again, the the regulator that I spoke to from Illinois um, said that they – want the purpose of kind of limitations is to prevent a glut. And my question was, look, I like to preface this with my question with this first. I don't wish financial hardship on anybody. And I feel awful for the folks that signed up in Oregon or any other state, Oklahoma, that had an open market and didn't succeed. I feel for them and I am I, I feel sorry for them. However, as you said, the difference is whether like it, it's just the opportunity and uh, it really boils down to that um, when the government, when the government is picking winners and losers and there's license limitations, I have a hard way of saying this, but limits equal limits. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't break past that. And so uh, I've been using Oregon and Oklahoma as um, kind of an example uh, in contrast to Illinois, and not only from from regulators, but even from um, advocacy groups, licensees, they all voice these concerns uh, saying, we don't want the open market, Pr- prices will fall. And to me, it really, it boils down to this. And I want to, I kind of want to ask you if you agree, Steve, like, do you think that license limitations artificially inflate the value of cannabis because the reason i asked that without those without those license limitations as we've seen wholesale prices drop and i'm just like maybe that's the value of cannabis why are we artificially inflating the value right yeah no i i think you see that dynamic at work economically you know if you look between states i think that i think that's probably true you know in some ways you know it's you can grow cannabis in Oregon. We've kind of, because it's prolific, we've turned them into dirt farmers, right? <laughs> they almost need subsidies now, right? Yeah, like, yeah like exactly. Um, we've, we've driven that down. On the other hand, as a consumer item, as a consumer product, you know, we are providing innovation around a diversity of products where they're more available. I think, the concerns that I see with cannabis and limitations most appropriately fall not on controlling the market, but controlling the intoxicating products in the population. And what you think of, I see the evolution of cannabis regulatory agencies as much more consumer protection agencies uh, for what we do so that, you know, you know, your, your joint uh, isn't laced with fentanyl. You know, uh, which is the amazing thing that Oregon did for a time. And, you know, we still have a robust illegal market. It's just not taking place amongst our licensees. You know, we had the invasion of cartels in the Southern Oregon last growth cycle, like uh, the world went uh, believe. I mean, it happened so fast and so quickly. It was really like, you know, the Netflix Narcos series come to Oregon and the cartels were multinational. There are Eastern European, Chinese, Mexican cartel operations. They came in, I don't know, it had to be like a billion dollars in investment. They built who passes to grow hemp, which wasn't hemp, uh, and danced in sort of the loophole of the federal program and the lax testing, the lax controls, uh, which we've, uh, uh, batten down some, but my point was when we developed our market and made it so prolific, you know, people weren't going to their plant grower or their, you can get the products great, relatively affordable, right? Products delivered right to your door. We displaced 
the illegal market inside Oregon. Well, yet uh, there was a developing, you know, or continuing developing illegal market out there. And I think really the half facilitated, mostly facilitated by the farm bill and its loopholes that allowed, you know, people to think about making intoxicating products out of hemp and getting away with it. <laughs> right. Right. Well, my, my last angle on this, this topic here is, is something that you brought up barriers to entry and mm-hmm. Illinois legalized cannabis. And a lot of people point to the legalization of Illinois and cannabis as one of the first, I believe Boston was actually the first um, to incorporate social equity. And the idea is to give people that have been historically disadvantaged an opportunity to participate now. <laughs> my question is so it seems like this our state said hey this is social equity you may not have money you may not have the experience now go no go run and now go run and operate in the hardest industry that the world has ever seen and with all of the other barriers to entry it makes me go back to you you said your licensing fee was five thousand i think that's similar to oklahoma and it's just like there are, an, my point is, there are enough barriers to entry in cannabis, like to build a controlled facility, to have, you know, end to it, to get your product from the facility to a dispensary. I mean, there's so many other things that I'm not thinking of. It's such a capital intensive market. And so that's, that's my other side of the, the limitations is that it adds unnecessary barriers. And I just wanted to know uh, what some of your thoughts thoughts were on that you know it's such a difficult social you know issue and to think that somehow your liquor administrator or your cannabis administrators are going to somehow solve the equity crisis the problem uh, in the country and generational wealth through the marijuana licenses one seeing how tough that business is it's just it's just hard to think about right and it's sort of fame you know and give you this license, but it's a license to fail, <laughs> you know? And now in a protected market, it's a license with a lot of value to you, right? It's immediately like, you know, in some states, licenses are more, I'm thinking liquor licensing, more like property. In other states, they really are the state's controlled piece of operations. You got to prove how that license moves. Some states, they can sell licenses, right? It's interesting with cannabis. We we don't it, the, we have the license and control, but we will approve changes of ownership, right? So there's a way to acquire into to a license, but it's a really difficult question. And the other parts of it that are difficult are the the fact that everything augurs against it when you look at the law, equal protection, the commerce clause, and the successful lawsuits that have shut down those approaches and the workarounds that we've tried to do due to, you know, make sure that we've respected and honored diversity and inclusion and value that in the marketplace. And I clearly do. Um, but it's really hard to think about it. It's like it, you know, um, you know, there are those that have argued and we've seen this debate and, evolve right and say well we should take the proceeds of that invested in things that are worthwhile forever that could produce in educational programs or otherwise that could produce a true benefit without this huge risk that you got of of you know failure of losing losing your man now in protected states license has more value so there's a little bit of a trade-off there but they don't necessarily lose but you know you try to do if the goal was to build, and I think this is where we're missing the boat, no matter whose system you're in. If the goal is, the goal should be to build durable minority operated businesses that operate in this space over time. And I think that is the goal. How to get there, right? One way is much more legally difficult, I think. Um, and I'm not sure the other way looks more traditional, like in all things, like for those uh, equity issues, it's about ac- access to capital is at the bottom line. And it makes it so Oregon is more traditional in that way. We have more of an access to capital issue uh, 
whereas you know other states have taken a different approach. There are disparities probably in other states that warrant that kind of approach. Uh, people who are definitely affected by this, you know, um, the, the criminalization of marijuana. Uh, and it doesn't apply as squarely to the system we have out here in Oregon in the same way. So, you know, my, uh, as an administrator, right, not as a policymaker and not on that side, where I'm trying to do with the tools that we have uh, is to provide support to those folks that really don't have capital to be able to have the opportunity um, to come into the system as part of a durable system. Um, and since, you know, we're probably cats out of the bag in Oregon, right? We've issued licenses. We got 2,800 of them, you know, not so valuable to give you one, right? Uh, depends on what time, uh, two years ago was more valuable than it is today in terms of, you know, acquiring a business. But it's really like, how do we respect those values, build up those minority entrepreneurs that really didn't have the capital? Not the ones that could get the capital and came in as a minority operator, right? Now, we have those in Oregon and we're proud of them. A lot of some of our biggest operators are minority owned businesses within Oregon. I, I will say I haven't done a disparity study, so I can't tell you with definitive knowledge about where we're at specifically in Oregon. I tell you some of the research done around it and not being complete is pretty in, uh, indicative that we have a pretty diverse base. You know, and I know my community here in Oregon, you know, that's concerning to them to hear because they want the opportunity to get more through and work very hard with the legislature to move through uh, more uh, opportunity, direct opportunities to them. Um, but in some way, that was kind of fame because it all crumbled, right? Because everyone looked at the problem, they couldn't get there. So uh, the approach, you know, it's not as satisfactory to the communities overall, but I think the approach is to be ever conscious about diversity and inclusion inside the system and try to build up that ownership because you have value in that. You, you have values that intrinsically say, that's the right thing to do. And we're gonna give people who don't have opportunity, opportunity. And whether that's more inclusive of than color, and I think it is in Oregon, you know, we got uh, equity issues between rural and urban here and the disparate treatment and how that happens. So we're struggling with it like every state. No state has a patent on this important social question of making it happen. The one thing that I'll say is that sometimes it works to our detriment because I believe short of popular cannabis politics, I believe the first thing you need to really help is banking. You need banking. Um, that's, a, that's a fundamental equity. All my equity, even licensees or people who want to do business need that. Um, and that's sort of fundamental. So that helps with equity, right? It helps with everything. Uh, but it's not exclusive to it. So it's hard to, you know, give that away. And you now I've been around um, policy development and politics for a very, very long time. And this is just part of that evolution of us getting there in this space. Yeah. And one of the middle ground approaches that I've heard, and I'm just curious as to what you think about this idea, hypothetically, of course, you know, things are much more complex when you get down to writing the rules and putting it into law. But hypothetically, I've heard this middle ground approach where it's like, okay, we have an open market. There's no limit on no limit on caps, but we also have social equity licenses in which people can qualify for kind of like an, I don't know if you are aware of how certain states determine what is social equity, but there are certain qualifications. Sure. Like if you have a cannabis offense, you live in a disproportionately sure. impacted area. We're looking at all that stuff and trying to figure out how we can use it and, you know, work through that space and not get a lawsuit, right? That stops it. Bingo. Um, we got some decent ideas about that. You know, we'll see if, see if they come to, 
to, to bear fruit. But yeah, sort of that. So that's kind of where we are. We have created the opportunity in Oregon law. I think I hear what you're saying, right? You've had licensees come in and then you're creating this opportunity license yeah. structure where it's like a mentoring and training developmental program, right? And we know that states can spend money on things that are inequitable, right? We have different in-state and out-of-state tuition rates. We have different, there. if you're spending money as a state, it gives you the opportunity to do a little more with um, uh, uh, directing where you want, who you want in the population that to serve, right? Typically, social programs across America use like income, right? Is one of those great love wars. You know, in this case, we're using some uh, arrest uh, information, um, you know. Um, location information, stuff yeah. like that. And well, so the- location, interestingly, we just had a, on the conference class to deal. You know, anything with geography, if it goes to the license, not to the social program, but to the license piece, is a problem with the commerce class because that's limited entry. So you really have to show something really special about that geographic location. That's why, you know, we saw that Maine, New Hampshire case, right? The company tried to come in and the court, you know, we one, only one decision, you know, um, that said, no, that's commerce class violation. Now to be able to come in, you can't just protect the residency. They get the opportunity to be in that market. Um, that's a threat to the basis of a lot of the social equity licensing uh, that we've seen in the states. And, you know, they'll have to adapt and confront that, you know, and they'll we'll all make our way through it. Um, yeah. But it's really challenging everyone, right? And we're sort of gridlocked around how to successfully achieve it. Yeah. So uh, to, so, since social equity candidates are considered historically disadvantaged, mm-hmm. uh, like you said, I think banking would be a good a good provision that would get them access to capital. I'm sure we would have to build in some controls to actually give them access to capital because, again, if they're historically disadvantaged, that means they probably don't have access to capital anyways. Back to yeah. the, the, the middle ground approach, though, it's the idea that you have open licensing, then you have some social – then you have social equity licensing. I don't want to say that there's a cap on that. It's the idea that non-social equity license holders pay social equity fees, right? So like an app when they initially apply, but then also yearly, and then those fees get funneled into a social equity fund, which social equity candidates could use for capital. So it's like two sources of capital, not only from the other industry players, you know, that aren't social equity, uh, but also like you say, banking, what it, um, do you think that's like closer to developing, you know, in one respect, that's a little bit of what we're trying to do in Oregon, you know, we're trying, so we got the opportunity without the legislature saying how to do it to, uh, create a marijuana reassignment or, uh, we have a marijuana license reassignment program. So it's for all those ones that don't get change of business or we've, uh, taken the license or people have just given the license back. Uh, we are counting those into this pool of licenses that we can reallocate to whatever program we divine. We haven't redefined that program. You know, I'm assuming, right. We're probably going to have, uh, low fees or no fees for those licenses. So in some ways that's, our licensee-based subsidizing the space of licenses. Um, I'm looking to get some capital from the legislature to plug into that to help us develop it. Um, and, you know, we've got some, uh, we got a new interesting idea that we're trying to approach. I, I, I do, it's not developed enough to break out in your audience. I think that it's baked enough to get there. But we're exploring, like, how we can make that work. You know, how we can, you know, both maybe even the state in a weird way is a deal maker between these population and folks who can get a license and help create that, right? Which is diversity licensing to some respect. You know, if you're in a regular control like Illinois, right, you want 51% ownership, right? Um, 
you know, some of this might be even developmental where they could get like a 35% stake in. The idea is you work them into that, maybe issue a second license at some point to separate it out. I think there's some things we can do that are um, innovative, that capture uh, the opportunity that we want to provide and actually provide that opportunity and aren't a path for failure. You know, one of the things I'm most objected to in the advocacy within Oregon for some direct, they wanted to give a delivery, a statewide delivery license, but not eliminate necessarily the existing delivery. That was a license to nowhere. <laughs> you know, it was just licensed to nowhere, but it was something, right? And I was, it's just, it was, it was offensive to me that that's what uh, the tool was. There was a lot of other good features, the money, everything else. So, you know, but that one piece of it was like, yeah, um, that, that's where there's less development, but there's already enough development and making a statewide license on a service that's already happening within a region or within a city really wasn't, you know, you're not creating any generational wealth off that opportunity. Gotcha. Maybe, maybe barely an income. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, to close, I've got two, I've got two topics and then we'll close. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you, I feel like the only cap that I support and I wanted to see what you think, uh, with regard to licensure, uh, licensure, uh, that, that's the correct word I'm looking for. Um, the only cap I am kind of for is an ownership cap. In other words, something to make sure or protect against an oligopoly or a, mon a monopoly. What, What's your take on that? And it, are there any provisions like that in Oregon? Help me out a little bit. I'm just trying to uh, really, first time I've heard it. Ownership. Oh, no, no problem. Uh, so like Illinois, for example, has it so that if, if you're in the cannabis industry, you can own no more than three cultivation centers and 10 dispensaries. What that will mean going forward is, yeah, you, it sounds like you get it. Yeah. Yeah. There you get, so you got, you got your stake in the business, but you're capped in scale that you can be inside the system. Um, you know, it's an interesting notion. We've had some legislators, uh, very supportive of that, maybe even a vertically integrated notion of that, which is a lot of some of the other, you know, states are, are doing, um, I'm not sure I have a clear opinion on the differences of those because I'm the, you know, the one thing about scalability, if you think about liquor, right? Liquor has very big companies and very small companies and craft is very popular, picking up sort of middle size. I tend to look for that stratification of the market to really develop uh, a good consumer market. Uh, across the nation and for the world. But um, yeah, and then you get to think about the one license type I would like eliminate or uh, cap would probably be labs, you know? <laughs> and it's only because, you know, we had embedded labs, we converted them, they get certified, they get certified to their specific results, right? So it's just for them. So there's this, this differences in their measurements. Even though we try to get equipment calibrated within ranges, there's not enough oversight. I can I cannot provide enough oversight on that. No state can. This is one where your overhead ought to be maybe the state should be doing that for all the testing or you contract it to a limited number of providers that don't have their economic interest of competing <laughs> as a service to the industry, you know, so you don't get, you know, lab shopping and high results. And I think that would uh, provide more certainty for the products that we're putting in the consumer side. Um, because I think that's the most distinguishing factor for us to create a successful American consumer market is we know our products are higher quality. That will, that's what will defeat the illegal market. Price is obviously important in that equation. But I think the most important thing is the quality of product is known, tested. You kind of got at least that imprimatur of a seal of approval on it. You know, 
And then, you know, and, and then you've created a distinguished legal market that you can build off of. Yeah. Um, yeah, people... People criticize me sometimes when I sometimes when I say I like open market approaches like mm-hmm. Oregon and Oklahoma because they say they don't want something like this to happen, which has happened with our food supply. So you see one, two, three, four, five, six number of companies, but then we've got you know the media is controlled by six companies, and so I feel like that is the one valid thing I've heard. It's like it's it's the idea that everything else in America has gone this way. So what if we build in protections to this new and burgeoning industry to prevent it from going that way? No. So that's the spirit of that question. Yeah. No, I, I, I see the spirit and I do think, you know, and just thinking about the development of this market and the public health and safety questions, this is coming through in alcohol now, you know, with PepsiCo wanting to create uh, hard uh, Mountain Dew, right? Uh, okay, but you know, if it was on our side where we do cannabis labels, not TTB's side where they do alcohol labels, uh, we'd say that's appealing to children with cartoon characters and all that. We wouldn't allow that label. But you think about the beer branding and major brands of beer, right? And you look at who the investors are in the, you know, the uh, publicly traded space. A lot of them are alcohol companies, uh, cigarette companies, right? Um, Canadian, <laughs> a lot of them. Um, so, you know, but I guess I had focused more on the branding and the cross-branding from a public health point of view. What does it mean if you got you know, what do they call them, the brews that are cannabis infused? They don't call them beer, right? But I think they call them brew, right? It's like, you know, and they're even, you know, have labels that look like they're national brand labels, uh, but they're a cannabis drink. Um, I'm not sure we should allow the power of that crossover into the market, right? I, that's at least a worthy question, right? And it kind of goes along with who do you want to control? Do you create some openings? But I'm not sure you keep them all the way out, but maybe you got to compete on a level playing field. You got to develop those brands inside this industry, not convert them over and into it. I don't have a pat answer to that question, but it is a uh, consideration that I know a lot of my industry is very, very concerned about. You know, we're a state of small growers, legacy growers. Uh, And here we are. I want to leave you with one thing for your about wrap. I got to get in my one, my one piece of advice to all of us, uh, that one, I'm not here in my, you know, I'm state capacity. I'm not here. I'm also part of camera, the regulators association. So my viewpoint only here, um, but for all the things we got going on and all the proposals in Congress that sort of deal like a deck of cards off the different functions, one the FDA, one the TTB, one the DEA. I think that's totally a wrong approach from the experience I've had of regulating cannabis. I think we've got to focus on this governance structure that we have in place. One, it's got to be fast. It's got to be flexible. It's got to be accessible. And it's got to be based on the experience and, the, and I believe the, the experience and honoring the state systems that have developed in federalization, nationalization of cannabis. So I really think that we need to think about a model. It could be hooked to any one of those agencies. You know, TTB has a lot of the functions that are necessary, tax collection and de-licensing. They do a lot of the things that are commerce functions for alcohol that I think translate well but regulating cannabis is totally different than regulating alcohol. And I, I think we need a commission, regardless of whether you think we need a commission or not, we ought to be thinking more, much more strongly about the governance structure because all these answers and limits that we're trying to impose in law or rule or change are fungible right now. This is so embryotic in what we got to regulate with synthetics being developed and other things. We don't have all the science we need. We have some experience from states. We have good human judgment to apply to science. And we need a place to be able to call balls and strikes for the commerce side to work. 
And I don't think you can put it into an agency and give it a part of a responsibility, especially at the federal level. We've seen this play out at state levels where we've been at loggerheads over you know, certain regulation. I don't think you need some place to harmonize all of the values that go into making those decisions about what, how the market should work, how federal taxation should work. Do we have a national registry by SKU with all the health information, which I think would be great, all the warnings, QR code. I, and right now, states, you know, I want to do that here in Oregon. But, you know, it's like, how much more weight are we going to carry state by state by state for that sort of math? the piece that naturally lends itself to naturalization. I think it needs a governance structure around it. Whatever model you pick, you know, your own flavor, um, all of these issues are going to be revisited and revisited and visited again that we're trying to make this decided. So if we can say, you know, it's legal in America, we're going to expunge crimes, we're changing that, and here's how commerce can work. The other piece that we got to pay attention to there is states have done a good job of leveraging the revenue, right, and managing it. Some states are dropping their revenue, take California. Um, states are in, I think, a best position to capitalize off, you know, the excise revenue there to match it to their constituency and to utilize it, uh, you know, for the public purposes that states have. I don't think we can think of the federal piece like it was sold maybe, you know, seven years ago, it was going to solve the national debt. Um, today, I think we're saying, yeah, we need to pay for that chunk of necessary federal regulation, cannabis medical research, maybe. You know, this uh, national lab system that helps us, you know, work through the testing and all that complex chemistry and science. States aren't set up to do that state by state by state. And the investment is too incredibly large to carry that off successfully on a state-by-state basis. So hoping to see some, you know, we need that. We need a part of that nationalized or federalized framework out there to make this um, cannabis market experience uh, successful. You know, this is, you know, the first time in what, you know, nearly 90 years or something that this country's reintroduced an intoxicant into the commercial system. We've got a lot to be responsible for as we do that. And I guess a final question, um, does your, does your position or will your position have anything to do? I'm familiar. I just spoke to a doctor who's moving to Oregon and will be participating in some sort of legal psilocybin, uh, program is your department involved in regulating that or what department no, is? No, we have one member or staff member that serves on the commission but that's really a medical program quite small they're developing it independently on that site they're using uh the contractors that won the award to track trace the growing is actually the same metric that we use uh, but no uh, it's independent of of us right now cool well we got enough we got enough work to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys. Yeah, I'm sure that between liquor and cannabis, that that there's a lot going on in your department. So mm-hmm. I think one of the best things you said today that contrasts the licensing structures we talked about is that one system, your system, views it more as just property. And property, generally speaking, I mean, sure, there are some barriers to entry to acquiring property, but for the most part, it's accepted as an American norm to, to get property and everything else. So in one structure, it's viewed as just property, but in another structure like Illinois, licenses are kind of viewed as a golden ticket. You didn't say that specifically, but uh, yeah, you, you said like value maker or something like that, the value in the license. So I feel like that really kind of boils down the comparison. So, yeah. Cool. Well, um, I just, again, want to thank you so much. Uh, I saw you on vice all those years ago as a young man, uh, I was in high school and I was, uh, just interested in this experiment. Um, because you know, that's exactly what it was. And I remember when that report came on vice that what happens when a state grows too much weed and your perspective was so, it, it would just caught, it's caught my attention and I've thought about it ever since. And then we've of course legalized and your perspective came back to mind 
And uh, I guess a final note, the, the point that I've already brought up, but it was like kind of the segue after you were talking was while operators, you know, have complaints about the open licensing structure, the one, the, the one group of people that aren't complaining are the cannabis consumers that can get an affordable product, like you say, delivered to their house and uh, everything yeah. else. So, yeah, All right. I happened to say that in a classroom the other day, in which a lot of the participants were industry participants. But I, you know, and then I identified right with the toughness of being an operator, and we got to give them a business that they can make a profit of. And so, one thing I just want to right. We have put in place a moratorium. At this level, we're the Wild West and entering, we've built all the way up there. Now there's a moratorium on all licensed types but labs. And so we are effectively capped at this high saturation level. Um, just so that's the contrast, right? We've moved up and now our legislature's stopped it at that high. Maybe enough is enough. Maybe enough is too much. You know, so, you know, we don't, it doesn't have all the magic and we're working our way through how we're going to get from here to the next phase of, you know, in, in what market environment are those licenses going to operate in the future. Thank you for addressing that. That's the one question I didn't ask you. It was just kind of yeah. how things look today. So I yeah. appreciate that. Cool. Right. We'll, we'll get out of here now, right? We're going to <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll get out of here now. So, <laughs> so folks, I hope you found value in this episode of the Chillamoy podcast, Steve, thank you so much again for sitting down with me. It's been a pleasure and an honor, frankly, I've been looking forward to this day for a long time. So, um, I'm not sure if you ever get told that as a cannabis regulator, it's a pleasure and an honor to sit with you today, sir. Not much, you know, this not much. data in a metric or, you know, <laughs> very pedantic regulatory system, but no, it's a good relationship. I appreciate that. And I appreciate what you're doing here. This has uh, been nice. And there's infrequent times where I get to talk about the system stuff around it, right? That's not my role. I don't answer those questions for the state of Oregon. I'm the administrator. Right. You know, carry out what we do, but pointing out the features and helping people to reach decisions about how to get there. I'm, I'm not sanguine in. There is a better, better convincing system out there. Is the ones that's going to work for us, but we're going to have to harmonize this to work together on a, on a national scale. Well said. Well said. And that's a good place to end. So, folks, we'll see you next time on the Chillinois Podcast. <laughs>